0: Welcome to the Bank of Me podcast channel, looking at how individual and team performance builds strong cultures.
1: Hosted by James Sparrow and Chris Preston.
0: You are listening to a deep dive. Episode.
1: On this episode of our Bank of Me podcast, I'm pleased to be joined by Simon Watts. He's an ENT consultant and facial plastic surgeon, and has got a great perspective on how the the world of theatre, in the surgical sense, has changed over the last 10 years with introduction of a number of techniques and tools. As you all know, that business more generally is looking for ideas and inspiration, and we turn to things such as aviation and the military to see what best practice they're doing. More and more, we're now looking at the the world of theatre and to to understand how they are breaking down silos, how they're improving communication, but also how they're using some very core techniques and tools to improve our own patient safety and the success of what they do. Simon, it's great to have you here with us today. Thank you, Chris. And Simon, I'm gonna ask you to dive straight in. So let's take you back. So when you first started as a surgeon, could you describe for me the, what it was like to be in theatre and how it worked so really we get an idea of what we've gone from and to?
0: Prior to 2007, uh, we had what you might think is very surprising, a very informal way of doing what we did. Now, don't get me wrong. As surgical and anaesthetic and nursing teams were all very aware of what our responsibilities are, and we're all acutely aware of how to do our jobs to the very highest standard. What 2007 and the WHO checklist did for us was it formalized these processes. So whereas before I might arrive in theater with my surgical team, I would have an informal chat with the anesthetist and the nursing staff, uh, albeit in theatre, not necessarily over a cup of coffee, and uh, just have uh, a discussion very briefly about what my needs for the operative session were going to be. Uh, We would individualize things and talk about individual patients, but as I say, it would be fairly informal, and we would talk about any inconsistencies in the procedure that we were about to perform. We then found uh, that a series of studies were undertaken where various teams uh, across the world in, in, in surgical uh, scenarios were actually starting to formalize this procedure. And we found that in a formalized checklist type scenario, we would have a reduction in morbidity and mortality of up to a third for some procedures. So it got people thinking If we can formalize this and just make it a little more structured, get people, instead of chatting over the proverbial cup of coffee... But actually talking to each other and to the individual teams and bringing them into a, uh, should we say, a big team approach and a big idea approach, we would tend to find that uh, our procedures would go more smoothly. We would have a more ordered uh, structure to our procedures. But not only that, if there was a potential problem or a a, a problem with the the, the procedure, uh, we would find that all the bases were covered in terms of the anaesthetist would know what we were doing, the nurse team would have uh, uh, the various bits and pieces that we we required and importantly me or my assistants were prepared for any eventuality
1: and I know you spoke to me before about this and one of the words you use is silos which if you're in business that that sounds all sorts of red flags and bells because we know from experience that silos cause problems and I think you're saying that the same sort of thing occurs in the surgical world where you have specialisms
0: very much so you know we're as I say, we're, we're all, I would like to think, very good at what we do. We have uh, very good te- techniques. They're up to date. We're well read, I would like to think. We do exams. We keep well up to speed on what's going on. But what we're surprisingly not particularly good at doing sometimes is talking across a specialty or across a silo, if you like, to tell each other what we're doing Now, thankfully, the pendulum over the last 10 years, as I say, has swung almost the other way, where we communicate virtually every single step of our procedure to both the anesthetic team and the nursing team so that people know where you're at at that particular time in surgery. So let's take, for example, a fairly straightforward standard procedure like tonsillectomy. Now, tonsillectomy is a procedure that's widely performed And it's a very, very safe procedure. I want to emphasize this. But it has various steps in it that can potentially compromise the airway for the anesthetic team as well. So we go to great lengths now to not just uh, communicate to our own surgical team where we're at, but to say to the anesthetist, we're about to remove the left tonsil. The left tonsil looks fairly big to me. I think there might be a little bit of irritation of the airway because there may be some bleeding. Or indeed, because it's so big, we may find that we'll be getting in the way of the tube that you're using to maintain the patient's airway. And the anesthetic team will then be able to prepare for what you're doing. At the same time, if we know that we have a a, a patient who may potentially be bleeding, or indeed uh, that the tonsils are so big they're involving the airway, that they will too prepare their sets, and they will organize to have the various sutures available, bipolar or monopolar diathermy, or indeed any other equipment you might need to safeguard that patient's procedure.
1: So uh, just let me reiterate and to double-check the figure, because from what you're saying, that, that this process is re- reduced by almost a third post-surgical complications and issues.
0: So it's, it will be procedure-specific, without doubt, But certainly, not necessarily mortality, but morbidity, in other words, injury to that patient from the procedure, that was reduced in certain procedures across the world because there was a safeguarding of patients' needs during the procedure. And in particular, what certain studies looked at was their passage through the post-operative period for 30 days afterwards. And they found at the 30-day mark or the one-month mark after the anesthetic that certain patients did about a third better or had a third less morbidity as a result of going through a simple structured checklist. Okay,
1: so I'd like to bury down into this because what you're saying is as well that this is not giving you new technology, it's not giving you new skill, it's not improving your knowledge because... As, you, as we know, surgeons are incredibly knowledgeable, talented, experienced people. We don't give them scalpels until they get to that state. So explain what this does, because it, it's not magic, is it? it is, it's science, and it's, it's, it's reoccurring science.
0: There is absolutely no alchemy in this whatsoever. We're not, uh, shall we say, pushing the boundaries of a surgical innovation and technique now don't get me wrong, we're constantly trying to look at new ways of doing what we do better, more efficiently, keeping the patient under anesthetic for as little possible time. But what this does is it promotes communication and should we say, well, let, let's let, let's dumb it down. Let's call it chatter across the silos. And what it does is it helps the anesthetic team to appreciate what the surgical team is doing and vice versa with the nursing team. Plus, what it helps us to do is it helps the surgical teams. Let's be clear, you know, I don't think you'll ever meet a surgeon who's not sort of very slightly type A, Who sort of says, well, it's my way or the highway. Occasionally, it will make the surgical teams more aware of what goes on anesthetically and from a nursing perspective as well. Now, It's not to say this wasn't going on 10 years ago, because, of course, we've all been very aware of what different teams do. But what it does is, and this is important, it makes you do it. It makes you stop for a small amount of time in your working day, and it makes you discuss individual cases right down to the bare bones of the procedure, such that we are all in no doubt as to... What the complexities of the procedure involve, not only from a surgical perspective, but also from an anaesthetic perspective and from a nursing perspective. So it promotes teamwork at a very, very fundamental, basic level, and that can only be good for our patients.
1: The words you use quite regularly around this is assumption and the danger of assumption and also the lack of chatter. Now, we don't value chatter enough but then you think back a number of years ago that the terrible Piper Alpha disaster was because too much assumption and not enough chatter, and it's hugely valuable, isn't it? That that
0: ongoing dialogue. I think that's absolutely correct, and when we talk about assumption, we assume because we're all professionals in the same environment we assume that other people know exactly what we're doing all the time. And that is a very, very, very dangerous thing to do. Because what we know is that as teams who have worked together for a long time, we get to know each other's habits inside and out. And so well-established teams that know each other not only are able to preempt what is going to come, but they also have a degree of intuition about what's going on. That doesn't always pertain, though, because we know that teams do change. People go on to other jobs. People are sometimes sick. Some people move on to other spheres of practice, but within the same team. So we cannot naturally assume that just because I know it, as the surgeon, that the anaesthetist knows it, that the nursing staff knows it. And what we do now, because of this checklist, is we assume that nobody knows anything. So we dumb it all down. And when I say dumb it down, we take it down to a very grassroots level, a very basic level, where we say, right, young master AB is going to be undergoing a tonsillectomy today. From a surgical perspective, I don't see that there are any uh, major concerns about this young uh, person's health uh, or indeed his ability to uh, undergo a tonsillectomy. Um, There are no medical issues uh, that might pertain to an uh, anesthetic. And from a nursing perspective, I expect things to be straightforward. uh, But we will need some bipolar diathermy. We'll need some ties for the uh, the lower pole of the tonsil. And... uh, we take it from there. But we make sure that everybody is in no doubt as to what's going to be going on with this individual patient. So it individualizes the patient and the problem and what we're going to be doing. Plus what it does is it brings everybody in to focus on that patient for an individual. And once we've... We, 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 we've Uh, uh, sorted out what we're going to be doing for that patient we then move on to our next patient so it's individualized it's structured we don't leave anything to chance we don't assume that the anesthetist and the nursing staff just know because we've done this a hundred times before
1: yeah and what's your opinion of the traditional view that surgeons don't get challenged by the people in the room and is that now changing because of this
0: I think that's a really, really interesting question because, as you're aware, and as I alluded to uh, previously, uh, surgeons have a certain aura about them sometimes. And everybody has a slightly different personality. You'll get softer surgeons and harder surgeons. You'll get quiet ones. You'll get loud ones, just like in any walk of life. But there is no doubt that there is a certain aura about a surgeon and a surgical team just because of what you do it's an important thing it's taking people's lives in your hands to a degree and so therefore there is a responsibility and that so-called aura about them and there is no doubt that in the past this has been something that may have uh, should we say inhibited communication between various teams and some people, it, it would be, it would not be inconceivable to have a certain member of staff, say a junior member of staff, be it anesthetic, be it even surgical or, or, or nursing, uh, feel a little reticent to approach a member of the surgical team because they might have felt inhibited to do so, a little scared, a little in awe of the surgical team, or indeed, uh, maybe just trusting that well they're the surgical team they must know what they're doing because they're all seeing all knowing and even if that member of staff might have seen something that they were slightly uncomfortable with and wanted to flag up they might well have been inhibited about coming forward to raise that whereas now because of this collegiate improved communication process even people like medical students or paramedics, or nursing assistants who might be in theatre with us are included in the briefing beforehand, so they are made to feel that they are part of the team for that day, and importantly, they are made to feel that if there is something awry or something that they don't agree with, they have a voice just as much as the head of the surgical team or the anaesthetic team or nursing team have to flag that up and to say, what's going on? question and it is also in reverse it is very much highlighted to us as the surgical team that we are to be as open as possible and indeed if we're so good at what we do we need to be open to be able to discuss and explain exactly what's going on and i know the same applies to the anesthetic and the, the nursing teams as well what you're
1: describing there is something that particularly aviation went through in the late 70s and 80s which was that problem of the aura and the, uh, the assumption of infallibility of captains uh, and there's a number of high profile cases where captains of airplanes would give the wrong command and people would follow it knowing it was going to crash the plane so it's and it's something that we see in business all the time that because you're senior you're infallible and there's a danger there around assumption. Now, tell me about nurses in this, because I know that the the, the nurse role is critical around this list, but also they've kind of been doing this a lot longer than than we realise.
0: In a way, we've been shown the way by our nursing staff. Now, A, the vast majority of our nursing staff are fantastically well-qualified, well-trained individuals, as you know. But what they've been doing forever and a day, it would seem is they have been carrying out their own WHO checklist because A, they're good at doing it, but B, they've done it through necessity. Because remember, when we have a a patient starting out on their journey, as it were, the first people they come into contact with on the day of surgery is invariably a member of the nursing staff or the allied nursing staff. And they will welcome various patients onto the ward they will identify them they will identify the procedure that they're having they will ensure that all their medications are with them that if they have allergies those are noted etc they will also ensure that all the paperwork is in order such that when the surgical team arrives to come and do the preoperative consent process that everything is in order that we have the right patient for the right procedure in the right place so yeah In in a way they've been doing it a lot longer than we have so for them it wasn't as big a jump Uh, and we know that now that we've been performing this checklist for 10 years it's a matter of routine now no no corners are cut you know it's all done uh, uh, very thoroughly and appropriately but it's now routine and that's what Uh, has really sort of opened our eyes uh, to the fact that pre-2007, we most probably missed a few really, uh, should we say, uh, important points in a few patients' journeys which might have made a difference to the outcome of their potential procedure. And what this does is it tries to minimise that. It stops the pyramid thinking. Pyramid, in other words, having your uh, consultants, uh, be they anesthetic or surgical, right at the top of the pyramid, uh, the pharaohs, if you like, not being questioned by any of the minions because they ultimately are the all-seeing and all-knowing. Now, don't get me wrong, we're still, as I say, highly trained and highly motivated, but we are now, I would like to think, more approachable and more in touch with what else is going on around us in a theatre scenario. And that, I feel, can only be good for our patients.
1: Absolutely. And tell me a little bit more about your own approach to communication now in terms of pre and post and during, because I know you do a lot more around feedback and and helping people understand how their communication is important
0: during the process. So what we do now as a surgical team is, uh, remember, that team is not just me. But it is invariably a training surgeon and there will often be a medical student there as well. What we do is, is we communicate amongst each other a lot more effectively. And as I say, it doesn't matter what the complexity of the procedure is, be it very simple to sometimes very complex and challenging with very sick patients. We go through the same pro forma together such that we don't miss anything that might be critical. And we make it a very open process, such that sometimes you uh, surprise. You might find this surprising, but sometimes you'll get medical students saying, well, what about this? And because the surgical teams are now a lot more open and approachable, more things are taken into consideration, uh, the, the so-called from the mouth of babes, if you like. So I think that because we're more open, and approachable, it means that we discuss all the eventualities uh, that might come out of that procedure rather than there being. Uh This is just a simple tonsillectomy. We're just going to go at it as a simple tonsillectomy. We talk about it in the wider sense of the impact on the patient, the impact on the family, how we follow them up in the post-operative period. So it becomes a more inclusive, collegiate uh, uh, approach to patient care, which uh, I think is very refreshing, uh, certainly from a surgical perspective. Our communication with our colleagues in the anesthetic and the nursing teams has also been vastly improved as a result of this. We don't all have deep-seated friendships where we're out together all the time, but when we're in a working environment and we work together, uh, there is a sense of relaxation that this imbues as a result of us knowing exactly what the other team is doing. And we've now found that you, you'll even get surgical teams speaking to the anaesthetists um, asking for details, in-depth details, about what's going on with the anaesthesia. Uh, the patient seems a little light. Have you used this? Have you tried that? Uh, and the anaesthetic teams will not be uh, affronted by this. They won't be offended by these questions. They will act just like we do in a collegiate sense and Talk such that we find a, a common solution to what might be going on during the, the procedure, so it has in a sense encouraged people to talk a lot more, but people understand that communication is at the root of an awful lot of what we do and describe your wash
1: up process so when surgery's finished, when the patients left the, the theater and and you have your team in in the kind of the room afterwards. How do you give
0: people feedback? How do you kind of acknowledge what's happened in that room? To take it back a step, remember what's come before. We've had a sign-in process where the patient has to identify themselves, has to identify the procedure they're having, and indeed they have to in- identify the side, if that's appropriate, that that procedure is being performed on, and the side will be marked so that the patient is identifying what they're having done. The surgical, anesthetic, and nursing teams have listened to that, and they've taken on board that we've got the right patient for the right procedure. So we have a tick in that box. So that is the sign-in process. We then have what's called the time-out process. So the time-out process is we now have an anesthetized patient who is on the operating table And the surgical and the anesthetic and the nursing teams are now ready to perform the procedure. We have an in-depth checklist at that point, which confirms again the procedure to make sure we have the right sets, that the anesthetist is happy, that the surgeon is happy, that we're ready to go. The timeout is now completed. Tick. We then have a sign-out process, such that the procedure is now finished, but our patient is still on the operating table. The nursing team will confirm that all the instruments are present and correct. The anaesthetic team will highlight what they feel are the challenges for the post operative recovery period. And the surgeon will confirm what's gone on during the procedure, what they feel might be the concerns for the post operative period, such that when that patient is taken from a surgical environment to a post surgical, post anaesthetic environment, everybody knows. What has gone on with the patient? There has been a handover to the post-operative care people such that there is no doubt where we're at with that procedure. We then have a hiatus in, in proceedings where we are in between patients, if you like. At that point, there will be a discussion between the teams about how the procedure went. Do we feel we could have done things slightly better or slightly worse? in terms of how it went and importantly how can we put it right for the next time we perform that procedure if that's necessary now sometimes that's done in between patients sometimes that is done at the end of your operating session which will be at the end of the morning or the end of the afternoon but this process takes place whereby there are usually three questions asked what do we feel went particularly well today what do we feel didn't go particularly well, and as of question two, how can we make the procedure better for the next time? That discussion takes place. It is actually signed off by all three teams and is then taken forward and submitted to the theatre controller who will collate these various discussions, will have a discussion with the surgical teams, and they will be logged and if necessary, put into a file for the what we call the morbidity and mortality meetings that we have every month, such that if there are things to highlight, they're highlighted at these meetings and discussed. So nothing is just left, oh, that didn't go particularly well, did it, George? No, I don't think it did either. Look, why don't we go and have a cup of coffee and then uh, we'll just try and do better next time, eh? <laughs> and do people give you direct feedback as part of that process? Without doubt. And as I say, it's all part of this uh, openness in the theatre environment now. It's a much less threatening place to be now, I feel. It's almost a happier place as a result. Look, we, we weren't stoics before 2007. We weren't all straight-laced and, and, and austere and, and all-seeing, all-knowing. But what this does is it gives people a sense of belonging to a team, and there's nothing like feeling that you belong to be able to say what you feel and to feel comfortable saying what you feel, for better or for worse. And we're very clear now about how we do things in a surgical context. And because of this openness of communication, there used to be, should we say, uh, an element of only highlighting the bad things and therefore having a go about things not having gone quite right and you pull your socks up next time George so to speak whereas now there's very much an element of do you know what that went really well thanks for that you know it was much better than last time it was really tight and slick Uh, so yeah really well done because a little pat on the back it goes an awfully long way. Whereas a few surly words set you back months, if not years. And we know this, this is human nature, but it just improves and it opens those channels of communication where you feel able to actually say to somebody, that was really good.
1: I I love that you're describing perfectly for me how a team is formed and what makes a team. Because you can't make a team just by putting people together in a room. That's just a meeting. It's actually like you say when people feel that they can speak up regardless of position, that there's praise, that there's dialogue and there's that chatter that we talked about. I think it's amazing. But I'm just going to re- ask you to reaffirm here because you're right that there's a, a persona of surgeons and a theatre that... It's quite flamboyant, isn't it? You've, there's great lots of films where you're seeing as people who've, having mopped brows and angst, and then there's stories about watch has been left inside patients, and a lot of it's just theatre, isn't it, around that? But surgery is a is a, a very risky but a very safe, in terms of you guys know what you're doing. This is not you're not trying to solve a massive problem. You're doing what people like the Red Arrows do, which is that consistent, constant search for a perfection and improvement, but never getting there.
0: I think you've hit the nail on the head when you talk about the red arrows, because right at the beginning of this podcast, you mentioned the military and the aviation authorities in particular. And they really have led the way in this regard in terms of working as teams, but not just working as teams uh, uh, to effect an outcome, but actually demonstrating that a team is formed by a group of individuals who communicate effectively. And effective communication is not just about uh, bluntly stating what I need for this procedure, let's get on with it. Communicating is about effecting a relationship between the various components in a theatre uh, such that we improve the outcome of that surgical procedure by simply telling each other where we're at with that procedure, encouraging each other to get the very, very best out of each other during that encounter, such that ultimately the very thing we're trying to achieve, which is a successful outcome of an uh, operative episode, is achieved with a minimum of fuss and bother, but with everybody buying into the concept that, The patient is at the center of this process, and we need to make sure that it's as safe and as effective as as possible, such that we have a happy patient at the end of it who has a decent outcome. That's what we're after. And the Red Arrows and the aviation authorities have showed us how to do this, because they go through it again and again and again and again. I've been to a training day with the Red Arrows, not sitting inside a simulator with them, but going through various scenarios with them. And what was most impressive about what they did was the fact that they normalized the abnormal. So you have individuals who are in in an incredibly pressurized situation, dealing with all sorts of events going on during those situations, as if it's just a normal working day and that very much pertains to what we do in a theatre environment sometimes to a greater extent sometimes to a lesser extent but you're doing some abnormal things as if they are ab- uh, as if they are normal everyday occurrences and the reason they're able to do that with efficiency and with as little effort as possible is because they go through things again and again and again such that it just becomes Normal, And if you have an adverse event uh, within those so-called abnormal surroundings, you're able to deal with it because you have the tools to deal with it, because that is affected by the teams that are with you, i.e. your colleagues, i.e. the nurses and the anesthetists and the paramedics and all the rest of it. The team helps you to deal with the abnormal episode such that it doesn't become a problem at all
1: again, beautifully describing what we should all be thinking, which is, first of all, it's we, not me. When it becomes me, it all fails. But the other thing as well is there's no shortcuts to success. No one's born successful, no one's born talented. It's practice, practice, practice. And it's rehearsal, rehearsal. Simon, I've got one more question for you, if that's okay. Slight tangent, but I'm fascinated by this. So, music in theatre. And I know you have an interesting taste in music in theatre, but... It does play an important part, doesn't it? It's not just background; it's not for effect. What does music do when you're operating?
0: It's a it's a great question, Chris, because um, as you're aware, you know we're 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 we're, we're good friends, and and uh, yes, I have slightly eclectic musical tastes. Um, but what theatre does for me is, as we've discussed, we're all highly trained and we know exactly what we're going to be doing on any given day at any given time but what music does is it can sometimes take a very severe harsh unforgiving environment and just very slightly soften it and what it does is it doesn't take your eye off the ball but it helps you to relax that subconscious part of you that might be slightly tightly wound and what it does is it takes you to just a slightly different place that doesn't stop you concentrating, but it helps you to relax and breathe and just take stock of what's going on. And it helps you to remember that the world is still going on around you and that there is still a light and there is still happiness and, and all these great things. And that's what music does, really, doesn't it? It is an evocative thing. It's a happy thing. I mean, I defy anybody to be able to listen to a piece of music and not have that take them back to, oh, their university days or their school days or a particular girlfriend or boyfriend or even maybe a, a slightly sad place. But it is evocative. And the music that we have playing in theatre, it's not intrusive. And in fact, we even go the extra mile to say, right, uh, what should we listen to today? Who wants to pick the playlist for today? And you might get the paramedic in theatre saying, well, I've got a nice playlist and they'll play something. And uh, it might not be to everybody's taste and they might be shot down in flames after a couple of songs. But there is sort of a team approach to the music as well. But it just helps you to, should we say, soften a process that be, can be, uh, to the naked eye, uh, quite a, a stark, unforgiving environment. And it helps to humanize us. And uh, that's what I love about music. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's classical or pop and rock or a little bit of sax. I think we draw the line at uh, at panpipes, but it's a process that uh, makes us all slightly better than we otherwise might have been and uh, I fully endorse having music in theater as a result.
1: What a lovely turn of phrase making you slightly better than you would have been. And so the killer question is then what is your number one song to play when you're operating? Ah. It's got to be Don't Stop Me Now by Queen. (laughs) And have you ever had a patient wake up singing Don't Stop Me Now? (laughs) Thankfully not. (laughs) (laughs) Simon, it has been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for opening up with this very fascinating critical world and sharing with us the techniques and the tools that you use to be more successful. They are so applicable into day-to-day business life. Uh, For those of you listening, if you are interested in this, there is a great book called Checklist, which talks in more detail about the creation of the World Health Organization Checklist. It's a good read, I'd advise that. Other than that, thank you very much for listening.
0: Thank you for listening. Continue the journey at www.theculturebuilders.com